But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word, we're, we started last week here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we were looking at, at verses, uh, verse 2, and we started a study understanding God's church and our calling. Understanding God's church and our calling into that church. Last week, we looked at understanding God's church. That's all the farthest we got. A lot to share about God's church. A lot of misunderstanding about God's church. But today, we want to spend a little bit of time speaking about our calling. If there's one thing I believe with all my heart as a pastor that so many Christians are struggling with in their faith... If there's one thing that's missing with those Christians who are really struggling in their faith, they just can't seem to go to the next level there in their their growth, in in their Christian habits, whatever it might be, it's always been a biblical, proper understanding of their calling, of who they are in Christ. Somehow they missed it. They're a believer, they they know that Christ saved them. They're affirming that, but they're struggling in so many different areas. Maybe it's sinful behavior. Maybe it's just not doing the things the Lord wants us to do when he wants, them, wants us to do them. But it comes back to that fundamental, that foundational thing of understanding who you are in Christ. Once you come to Christ, the Bible says that you are a new person in Christ. If you fail to understand what that means, you're going to struggle. In your new faith, you're going to struggle as a Christian. We have to understand that our identity as Christians is not in ourselves, it's not in a denomination, it's not in a church. Our identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. He needed the Corinthian church, those who were gathered in Corinth as believers, he needed them more than anything to understand who they were in Christ because it's so fundamental, it's so foundational to our growth as believers. Well, today we're going to look at our calling, what it means to be a saint. Now, you might be thinking, you don't know me if you're calling me a saint. (laughs) Or you may be thinking, oh, you think you're a saint? (laughs) Well, actually, yes. I am a saint. You can call me Saint Stephen. I'm not saying that piously. I'm saying that as a matter of fact. Just like you can call yourself a saint. If you're a follower and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Now, when we hear that word saint, we probably conjure up in our minds all kinds of different meanings and different thoughts. For most of my life, when I thought of the word saint, I used to think of a Catholic image. I would think of a picture of an individual with that little halo around their head, glowing. Their face is just glowing. Or I would think of a medal I used to wear around my neck, St. Christopher medal, to protect me. My sister bought me this St. Christopher medal when we were visiting the Vatican when I was just 12 years of age. So I had gone on to be an altar boy and everything, and that 
St. Christopher medal meant the world to me, literally. I never took it off. I didn't take it off when I took a shower. I didn't take it off when I went to bed. Never took it off. I wore it every day faithfully. But one day when we were out in the woods there in our home in Pennsylvania playing, I got home and at the dinner table, I scratched my neck and I realized the chain was gone. (laughs) St. Christopher was lost. And it was my fault. You laugh, but you know what? I remember for years and years and years, that haunted me. It just haunted me. As a young Catholic, even as an altar boy, I thought, oh man, I'm the one that lost St. Christopher. And I diligently, this is the truth, I searched for that medal for years. Up until I was in high school, I remember going for walks in our woods. We had a lot of property back in Pennsylvania. And I remember in the fall, you know, all the leaves are falling and there's a lot of leaves on the trail. And I remember just kicking the leaves thinking, come on, Lord. Just, just, I just want to see that little glimmer of that chain. I know it's here somewhere in these woods where we were playing. And I would search for years for that. Well, I never found St. Christopher. Maybe that was God's way of steering me (laughs) to true faith in Christ. I don't know. But whatever image you conjure up in your mind when you think of the word saint, for the most part, a lot of people don't have a biblical understanding of what that word means. The word scripturally, when you look at the scriptures and you look at the word saint, it it doesn't refer to some special person or or some people who've been uh, recognized by some big church or some church council that are to be prayed to by the masses, bowing, kissing, burning candles to their images. That's not what a saint is, according to the Bible. The term saint in the Word of God is simply defined right here for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at that. But before we get to what a saint is, I just want to remind us what we looked at last week. We were talking about understanding God's church. And we talked about that word church, and we said, you know what? The word in the Greek means called out ones, separated ones. And we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter goes into detail. He says, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the church are those who are called out of the darkness of the world by the grace of God through Christ, To be his own people. Well, let's give this word, church, a definition. John MacArthur defines it this way. The church is not a physical building. It's not a group of believers, not a denomination, sect, or association, but a spiritual body. The church is not an organization, but a communion, an organism, a fellowship that includes believers. So this is speaking of the universal church, and this is what we looked at. We looked at first the universal church, the church that is made up by all believers all over the world. It doesn't matter whether you're in Redwood City 
or in Dehradun, India, where we'll be going in a couple weeks, or in Mexico, or in France. If you are a believer, if you, are, if you have put your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are brought into what God calls the church, the church universal. It's made up of people from all walks of life, from all races, from all backgrounds, with only one thing in common. Those people are sinners who needed to be saved by God's grace. That's what we have in common. And we found that forgiveness in Christ. And so we spoke of the universal church. That's the big picture. We said that it represents the body of Christ. It represents a family. It's talking. That's why we call each other brother and sister. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Well, you may not be my blood brother or sister, but you're my sister or my brother in Christ. And that's just as important. And then we looked at the local church, and we talked a little bit about the local church, what that is. When it comes to, uh, you know, the local church is just a smaller group of believers that come together to worship, fellowship, receive teaching from God's Word, the Bible, and evangelize in a localized area. That's what a local church is. This is a local church. We make up a local church. There's another local church down the block. There's many local churches. There's another definition I'd like to give it. The church is people living and loving, learning and laboring, leading and following together for the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the head. You know, that is so important that we understand that when it comes to what the local church is. It's not a building. It's still made up of individuals. It's made up of people who are called out from the world, the Bible says, out of darkness into the glorious light. And while we're still living in the world, for a witness to the world, for the Lord. That's what we're left here for. If that weren't the case, God would just save us and we'd be gone. Do you understand? I mean, the reason God saves us and leaves us here in this muck and mire of this world is because he has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us. And what is that? It's to be the salt, right? And the light of the darkness that is in the world today. That's what we're called to do as individual Christians. We're not called to gather together as a little holy huddle, you know, us four no more, and, oh, we're just going to get together and keep that world out, keep that world away from us. No, we're to leave this building, these four walls, and go out and penetrate the darkness with the light of Christ and with the salt of Christ, that, that they would find flavor in our life that affects change in theirs. The only way that can happen is if you've been affected by Christ in the first place. You need to understand that God has saved you for a purpose, for a reason. It wasn't just to come to church and sit there Sunday morning and and be taught something and then leave. That's just a benefit of being part of the church. As believers, we're called to go out and affect change in the world around us. And by the way, you know, I mean, I think I've been in this church a little over 20 years. 
But in every church I've been in, as a youth pastor prior to this, the one thing I noticed is there's always people who will come into the local church, and for whatever reason, they're looking for, quote, the perfect church. <laughs> That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the perfect church. And I noticed something about these people that come to churches looking for the perfect church. They're usually on a continuous search for the perfect church. Uh, Something they all share in common is simply this. They never find it. Because you know what? On this side of glory, the perfect church does not exist. Amen? Amen? It just doesn't exist. The church is made up of sinners who are saved by God's grace. And so if you're looking for the perfect church, you're not going to find it. It's a, it's a meaningless task. And they're constantly, people like that are constantly hoping from one church to the next. Because <laughs> it doesn't take too long for them to figure out that the church they're in presently is not a perfect church. Well, this, is, this church is imperfect. I guess we'll move on in our quest for the perfect church. And they're very fickle. And they have false expectations of what the church should be. Because they don't have a proper biblical understanding of what the church is. So they create a figment of the church in their own imagination saying, well, this is what I view as the church. You know, I always appreciate people who maybe they're moving from one area of the country to our area here in California. And I get a call from them. And the first thing they do is they call to try to find a local church. And, and some of the, you know, conversations are very, very interesting. And you can tell they have their priorities right. Usually the conversation starts something like this. Hello, Pastor. We're considering moving into your area, and we'd like to know a little bit more about Grace Bible Church. What can you tell us? Would you mind if we ask you some questions? And sometimes I get a little ahead of myself, and I say, well, you know, we're a Bible. Oh, wait, we've already been to your website. <laughs> you have, yeah. We've read your statement of faith. That's why we're calling you. Okay. And, you know, we, we pretty much agree with everything. And I said, well, we teach expositionally. Well, no, we know because we've already listened to several of your messages. I'm thinking, wow, okay. Maybe I'll just shut up and let them ask the questions, right? And so they'll ask me a couple questions, you know, how many people, whatever, when's the time of the service, whatever it might be. But it's so refreshing to find people before they even move. Their quest is to find a local church that they can get plugged into And some people even say, well, if we came to your church, how would we serve? I'm like, man, when are you moving? I'll pay for the moving van. Come on. We need you here. Right? It's so refreshing because their priorities are in the right place. They're not looking for the perfect church because they understand the perfect church doesn't exist. They're looking for a church that they can become part of, that teaches faithfully the word of God that's willing to embrace them and allow them to serve with the gifts and abilities that God has given them. I came across this little poem this last week. I want to read it for you. Speaking of churches, it goes like this. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be, a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never gets the blues. A church whose deacons always deke, 
And none is proud, but all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies, or make complaints or criticize, where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind. Such a perfect, such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still, we'll work, we'll pray, we'll plan to make our own church the best we can. See, that's what we're called to do as a church. We're called to come together and become the best we can for Christ. Because we understand that no church is perfect this side of glory. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives. Now listen, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, listen, sanctify her, sanctify, set, it, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present, here it is, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might become holy and without blemish. That's going to be the church in glory. That's what we're shooting for, even though we realize we're never going to arrive this side of glory. And the model of the church is formed by looking at priorities and structures in the early church. And we looked at this last week. We looked at the priorities of the early church. What was it? We looked at teaching. We looked at fellowship. We looked at communion. And we looked at prayer. That's what the church is to be about. I mean, everything else is on the side. If, if, if we're plugged in as a church and there's no teaching going on, then I wouldn't even call it a church. Or if you don't have fellowship, you don't have communion, you're not celebrating the Lord's table, you don't have prayer. All those things are priorities of the New Testament church. And those things should be priorities in our lives as Christians as well. Well, I want to read for us our text this morning again, just so we know what we're about to delve into here when we look at the idea of of being called out by God, being sanctified by God, being a saint in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sophonies to the church of God. That's the universal church, by the way. That is in Corinth. That's the local church. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. We see here the universal church, the church of God, and we see the local church, the church that is at Corinth. Well, first of all, here I want us to look at, secondly, the the consecration. We've looked at the church. That was kind of a review from, from, from last week. But today we want to look at the church as the consecration. Those, it says, sanctified in Christ Jesus in verse 2. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word in the original Greek means to separate. What's interesting, it's in the perfect tense, which what that means is it's an action that's been completed in the past, but it has ongoing results. 
It's not something that just happened and that's it. It's something that happened at a specific time and it has ongoing results or ongoing effects. The other thing that's interesting about this word, it's in the passive voice. What's that mean? That means it's something done to you by an outside agent. In other words, you can't sanctify yourself in Christ Jesus. Can't do it. Why? Because what does that mean? It means to set apart. Well, who's doing the setting apart? It's not us. It's God. It's God who sets us apart. It's God who saves us. At a point in time where we understand the gospel and we're willing to commit our lives to him. We're willing to cry out to God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I understand I'm a sinner and I'm standing before a holy God and there's no hope for me outside of Christ. And you come to Christ and you're willing to give up all to follow him. You're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, the Bible says, and follow him. You know, sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we share all the good news, but we don't share the bad news. Sometimes we start our evangelistic messages with, well, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay. Well, don't you want to be part of that plan? Yeah, I guess. Well, just trust Jesus. Okay. Well, here, just let me pray this prayer with you. Okay. Well, congratulations. Now you're a Christian. (laughs) Wait a minute. I think we missed a couple steps here. See, until you understand the drastic news, the humbling news, the pride-crushing news that you are a sinner, nothing more than that. You are a sinner who is in desperate need of God's grace. Without God's grace, you would be lost for all eternity. Without God's grace, you would never understand what he says there in verse 3. You would never understand the the grace of God. You would never understand the peace of God. You want peace in your life? Then you come to Christ. Christ will give you a peace. The Bible says it surpasses all understanding. I mean, how many believers I run into that, oh, they're just worrying themselves sick. Over meaningless things sometimes. And I'm thinking, wow, as a believer, where's your peace? It's tragic. I mean, they have stress, stress, and more stress. And I get it. We live in a stressful world. We all have stress in our lives. But I'll tell you what, the peace of Christ gives me the ability to deal with that stress on a daily basis. It's that peace that comes from Christ in Christ alone. So you have to stop and you have to say, wait a minute. Am I separated onto God by God. In other words, has God saved me? I'm fully convinced that churches are full of people that are convinced that they're saved, but they're not. Well, that sounds judgmental. Okay. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that we should what? Examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. That's not a one-time examination. We're to examine ourselves, by the way, every time we what? Every time we come to the communion table. And so when you stop and you think of coming to the communion table and what that means, it's not just eating a cracker and drinking a, a, a little shot of uh, grape juice. That's not what communion is. Communion is remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 
remembering what he's done for us and remembering more than anything else how undeserving we are that the God of all creation would reach down and save us. Do you ever ask yourself the question, why me? Why me? Why did you save me? I mean, I came from a big family, six brothers, two sisters. By God's grace, most of them had professed Christ. But you know what? When I first got saved, the majority of them weren't saved. And I thought, man, God, why did you put me in this situation? Here I am telling my, my brothers and sisters of my own family that, well, they, they could be lost and going on their way to hell. And it's creating all this tension in my family. Because I know that just being part of the Catholic Church doesn't save you. And that's what they believed. And so when I share that message with them, they would come just unfrazzled. They would, well, what are you saying? Don't you understand? Your mom was a Catholic. My oldest brother told me one day, do you know when your mom died, I promised her that I would raise you in the Catholic faith. I'm like, okay, sorry. I don't know what to tell you. And it created a lot of problems. And I remember questioning God, why me? Why don't you save them first? It'd be a lot easier. <laughs> See, God has a purpose. He has a plan. We're not to question God. But sometimes it's good to ask that question. God, why did you save me? Why did you bestow your grace upon me? That word sanctified here, it means basically holy one. It means saint. It's kind of the different versions of the word here. It says there are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Those are the same words. It's from the same root meaning, hagias, which means holy one or set apart one. When we say things like phrases like holy is the name of God, what do we mean? There's no other name besides God's name. We mean it stands apart from all others. When you say something like, wow, that, that place is a holy place, what does that mean? It means it's being used for a sacred worship of God. It's set apart for that reason. That's why we wouldn't condone having a big drunken brawl and party here in our church building. Why? Because we consider this a holy place. I mean, it's not holy in the fact that, you know, that kind of holy, but it is set apart. What's it set apart for? It's set apart for the worship of God's people to come together, to be built up in their faith. A city like Jerusalem, the holy city. Why? Because it's set apart for the nation of Israel. It's a place where they worship God. Well, a person is holy when he's set apart from the spirit of worldliness onto the spirit of God. Onto the spirit of Christ. What's interesting in my studies, I found out hagias is not the only word that can be translated holy. There's another Greek word. Heros. And that's where we get the, the, the word priest from. And the difference between those two words is where we get the word hierarchy. Can you hear it? Hear us, hierarchy? It's derived from that. It, it means leadership. It means those who are set apart. Sometimes they're called mighty ones. Uh, the New Testament would call a thing holy. 
hieros, when it's referring to something, just an object, which was in itself spotlessly clean, like the Holy Scriptures. When you refer to the Holy Scriptures, they're using the word hieros there. But hagias, there is the same word here as for saint, holy or saint set apart, is something or somebody that is now offered to God, regardless, listen, of what may have been its own nature or past history. So that word saint has the idea that irregardless of your past history, because God has sent you apart, you are holy, you are set apart. And the reason Paul uses that word is because the Corinthian Christians in themselves were anything but saintly. I mean, we're going to get into some deep issues as we go through this letter. Paul was not writing them to say, hey, that a boy, way to go. <laughs> he was writing them out of concern because their church was full of sinful practices and fleshly desires. Their background was evil. Their background was sinful. But you know what? He starts off this letter by saying they were sanctified by Christ because they welcomed Christ into their hearts. Their sanctification, think of it this way, was a snatching away from sin, a purification, and a setting apart onto God. That's what sanctification is. It had nothing to do with their own merits or their own behavior. As I said, it happened in the past and it has ongoing results. You can't sanctify yourself just like the Corinthians could not sanctify themselves. They were sanctified at a certain time in their own lives by the Lord Jesus Christ and set apart by him, to him, by God. Paul applies the concept of sanctification passively, like justification. We can't justify ourselves. That's another word. It, it means to have right standing before God. Some people say justification means just as if you've never sinned. That's how God views you. Not because that's the plain truth. We all sin in a myriad of ways each and every day. But God is able, because we are justified in Christ, by Christ's work on the cross... Because of that, we have his righteousness given to us, imputed to us, the Bible says. And Christ, when he died on the cross, he took upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. And he took that upon himself. The Bible says he became sin for us. So he took on himself, the spotless lamb of God, all the sins of all those who would ever place any faith in Christ. We can call them the church. He took all the sins of this church upon himself. And what did he give us? He gave us in return for our sin. He gave us his righteousness. That's justification. That's a proper standing before God. That's done by God. It can't be done by us. We're mere sinners. We couldn't even stand in the presence of God. And sanctification is the same thing. It's done by God. He sets us apart. God is the author of sanctification, not us. 
Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines sanctification this way. Sanctification is not moral action on the part of man. It is not moral action on the part of man, but a divinely affected state. See, sanctification is a state of being. Before our state of being was what? Sinfulness. We were given into the world. We were drowning in our sin. And God, by his grace, took us from that and he set us apart. He sanctified us. He he pulled us out of that and he put us in the glorious light of Christ, forgiving our sins for all of eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul even talks of this. He says, in such thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, all those were some of you. Let me get to the verse here so I don't mess it up and we'll read it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Uh, we'll start, go back to verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Everybody. Everybody, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's not a hard statement to understand. It's black and white. And then Paul says this. To the Corinthians, verse 11, lest they think they're pretty pious in their Christianity. He says, in such were some of you. See, we can never forget from whence we came, brothers and sisters. We don't walk out of this church with our nose held high in the air. I am a Christian. And this filthy world around me, oh, they're all going to hell. That's, that's not the proper attitude to have as a believer. Our hearts should break for those who have yet to come to Christ. He says, and such were some of you. Look at verse 11. I love this, but. I love the buts of Scripture. Bob read one this morning. And such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. By what? The blood of Christ. That's why Christ died on the cross. To wash you of your sins. Don't you like it when you're just grimy? Maybe you had a long day and you're sweaty. Maybe you went to the gym, whatever. And you get home. Don't you just love to go in the house and turn on the shower and ah, oh, use the soap? That's, I like I, I like soaps that smell. You know, body wash that smell. Oh, I just love that kind of stuff. It just gets me going. You lather up and you rinse off and you, you feel so refreshed. I mean, I think about those things a lot. I don't know why. I just, I think of, you know, man, it's, I asked my grandkids one time. I said, okay, I got, a, I got a question for you. If you could only have one shower or one bath a day, just one, when would you take it? And they look at me and go, who cares? What, why are you asking? Well, it's just things I think about. I'm just questioning. They're like, you're weird, Grandpa. So, you know, some of them said, well, I think I'd take it in the morning because it'd help me wake up. I said, yeah, but think about this thing. So you're going to go out in this world. You're going to do all this stuff. You're going to work. You're going to play. You're gonna, and then you're going to come home at night. 
And you're going to climb in your fresh, clean sheets, all sweaty. And, oh, like, you couldn't do that, right? They're like, Grandpa, you're really weird. This is, you really thought about this, you know? Yeah, you'd probably want to take a, a shower at night if you could just take one, because you're done with the day. And, and, and that's what this, this kind of speaks of being washed is a refreshing thing. You know, if you're beaten down by this world, if your sin is just a burden upon you, come to Christ. Come to Christ. He will wash you. He will make you clean. He will take that burden of sin away from you. But you have to ask. You have to come to him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And he will. Because we cannot sanctify ourselves. But it says that you were washed or washed I'm from Pennsylvania so we say washed but anyway but you were washed and then he says look verse 11 you were sanctified you were sanctified you were set apart that's the word you were justified not in your own name but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God the whole Trinity is involved in saving us. Do you understand that? I mean, what a magnificent thing. And so they were purified from their sins. Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to realize their position in Christ in spite of all their imperfections. And if there's one thing you can take away today, please understand that. That in spite of all your imperfections, God has set you apart. He desires you to be holy. You are holy in his sight. Now this doesn't mean that once for all you're sinless. As saints, we don't walk around saying, oh, I'm sinless. I don't sin because I'm a saint. That's not true. And if you disagree with me, just let me follow you around for probably less than an hour. And I'll point out various sins in your life that I'm sure that God would give me wisdom to see. Just like you could do the same thing for me. See, this is, there's this constant growth to be attained in the Christian life. You don't just get saved and that's it. That's the process of sanctification. Our perfection is in Christ, but never in ourselves. Our perfection is found in Christ, never in ourselves. That's why the apostle, who called the Corinthian Christians saints or sanctified, he also called upon the same Christians to perfect their holiness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, not to have sexual relationships with a woman unless it's your wife. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. For the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not bribe your one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. And I'm reading the entire wrong passage. (laughs) 
Hey, like I said, you know, churches aren't perfect. There's a husband and wife that needed to hear that. I don't know why, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Sorry about that. I'm thinking, where am I going with this? This is not, I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable at this point. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Forgive me. Oh, boy. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us, look, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay, that's what Paul wanted for them. That this holiness thing doesn't just stop when you're saved. You have to bring it to completion. It's a process. Hebrews 10.10 says, Uh, That we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. He positionally sets us apart once for all. We live no more in the sphere of the devil and the world. We are in the sphere of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. Notice that Paul does not say there, sanctified by Christ. Do you see that? He says sanctified in Christ. Back to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Those who are sanctified in Christ, not those who are sanctified by Christ. He is not emphasizing the agent of our sanctification so much as our position as believers. That's what that means. His whole epistle really stresses the realization of our relationship of being in Christ. What does that mean? The Christians... In the Corinthian church and in our church and every church are imperfect, but they're still in Christ. Just as those in the physical world are possessed by various degrees of maturity, personality. You say somebody, oh, that guy's immature. This person's more mature. That's the way it is with those in Christ. Some are more mature than others. And you notice there in that verse, it says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus Christ. He says Christ Jesus. Once again, the divine Christ, the title of Messiah, comes before his human humanity. As a man, as a mere man... You cannot set yourself apart. You can't give yourself a new nature. But you know what? The expected anointed one, Christ, the eternal word of God, when he became flesh, he can. See, that's what the amazing thing about this is. And so there's also the work of sanctification that we are in the process of understanding. And that goes to the call, and we'll get into that next week. But I I want to just remind you that, you know, we're we're called to be separate. We're called onto Christ. The Bible speaks of the beauty of holiness. Unfortunately, sometimes what is called holy by man is not really beautiful. You think of back in Jesus' day when you had the Pharisees. They thought themselves to be holy. What did Jesus call them? Whitewashed tombs. Wow. They were very exact in keeping the law of God, so they thought. But their lives were anything from beautiful. They offered long prayers. They spent much time in the synagogues. But they were mean. They were selfish. They were critical. And they were dishonest. 
in their backbiting lives. See, true saintliness is beautiful. And that's the saintliness that only Christ can bring into your life when you commit your heart and your lives to him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know that you have set us apart as your church. And Lord, you do call us saints. And for that, we're grateful. And positionally, we are. We are set apart for you for all eternity. Nothing can ever change that. Nothing from the outside, nothing from the inside. We are secure in your hands if we've been saved by the blood of Christ. That our sins have been washed away, past, present, future. If you're here today and you have yet to place your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I plead with you to do so. Don't rely on your religiosity. Don't rely on your own holiness because you know what? You don't have any. Don't rely on your own righteousness because same thing, you don't have any. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Not even one. And yet you have provided a way for unrighteous, unholy beings to come into your presence, to be forgiven of their sin, and to live a life that's worthy of that call for all eternity. And that's through the work of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in maybe the way you were raised or what church you went to or this or that, you're trusting in the wrong thing. Your trust needs to be by faith alone in Christ alone. Through his grace, he will save you. When you come to him with a humble, broken heart, broken over your sin, broken over the fact that you were separated from your God and your creator, he desires to have a relationship with you. And he's done everything possible to make that happen. I pray that you would yield to his call upon your life this morning. Fully commit your life to him. And Lord, as believers, as we leave this place, I pray that we would leave with expectant hearts, looking forward to how you're going to use us even the rest of this day to encourage another brother or sister in Christ as we fellowship across the way over some food. Lord, I pray that you would use that time to edify us, to help us Start, begin, continue relationships with each other. That, Lord, you'd be honored with our conversation. And, Father, when we leave this property today, I pray that you would put upon our hearts a burden that only you could, a burden to reach the lost for Christ. We live in such a needy area here. We live in a dark area of our whole country, spiritually speaking. And, Father, you've placed this church, you've placed us as individual Christians here in this place, in this time, for your purpose, for your plan. And that's to go out and to, to preach and proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ, that it would affect change on people's hearts and minds. And that we'd see many, young, old, come to Christ, men, women, Lord, that they would acknowledge their need of a Savior as we're faithful to share the gospel with them. We thank you for our time here this morning. We pray you bless our fellowship across the way and bless that we sing our last song together. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.